But good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing good? Got some good bass going. There we go. Um, Good. Good to see everybody. Open up, if you will, to James. James chapter 2 this morning. So we get to start on a new chapter. And um, hopefully, one of the things you've already begun to appreciate about James is just how plainly he speaks, how, how direct, practical his teaching is, um, very practical instruction, very straightforward, uh, addressing our day-to-day needs, our day-to-day lives as Christians. And really, today's no different. The passage this morning Our James chapter 2 verses 1 to 13 is where we'll be and it's again a very direct plainly spoken passage from James that we can easily take and apply to our lives as individuals and as a church. Now run through pretend like you're in the checkout aisle at a grocery store so you know you you skip the self-checkout thing which everybody's doing these days you actually you had a human you wanted to go to and you're looking around you're waiting your your turn in line and you look at the magazines there that they're selling what kind of what kind of people do they uh, tend to highlight like people magazine or whatever it may be what kind of what kind of folks are you going to see on the cover celebrities celebrities Wealthy people, good looking people, right? Like this is generally who you're gonna see. Do you ever see like, you know, the the lawn keeper down the street? You ever see like the basic everyday average person? No, because that's not what the world's interested in. The world is interested in prestige. When it comes time for Oprah to do her interview, it's gonna be with the royal family, right? It's not going to be with like the school teacher or the car mechanic because the world is interested in celebrity, power, prestige, money. This passage that we're looking at, the world esteems people based on prestige and power. But James chapter 2 verses 1 to 13, what James is going to teach us is that followers of Christ should not show partiality towards others based on superficial worldly standards. And I put worldly standards there because I want us to really draw the contrast in how the church should value people versus how the world values people. And James is gonna give us four pieces of instruction here in verses one to 13 when it comes to this sin of partiality or this sin of favoritism. And James begins in verse one with a command. Our first point here, the command against favoritism. So he's just going to give us the command very clearly, very directly, and then go on building upon uh, that command to teach us and help us to have better insight into how this can look among us in the church and also why it's so important that we don't fall into this sin. So first, the command against favoritism. He starts off, my brethren, Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Who's James talking to here? He's talking to Christians. He makes that clear in two different ways. First of all, he he refers to his audience's brethren, 
uh, fellow members of the family of God, the body of Christ. And another way he puts it here is he's talking to those who have faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That faith is the very thing that makes you a Christian. That faith is the very reason that he can refer to them as brethren. So the command that James is giving here applies to anyone who would be a follower of Christ. It applies to us. It's something that we should pay very close attention to. And what does he say for those of us who are of this faith? He says, do not hold our faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. He's going to draw a contrast here to just show how these two attitudes, the the attitude of faith in Christ and the attitude of personal favoritism, how they shouldn't mix, how they can't properly mix. And so to, to make this contrast clear to us, he starts with the greatness of the object of our faith. Our faith is not in just any so-called God, or our faith is not in some mundane savior. The faith of the Christian, the object of our faith is our glorious Lord and God, Jesus Christ. And so the gloriousness of the object of our faith on the one hand, there, you can't mix it, this glorious faith in our savior with an attitude of personal favoritism when it comes to other Christians. These two things should not mix. And throughout this passage, James is going to try to show us, or he is going to show us, the seriousness of this sin. Now, what does he mean by this What does he mean by an attitude of personal favoritism? What's interesting is that is actually one word in the Greek, attitude of personal favoritism, one single word. And this word carries with it the idea of lifting up, pulling up somebody's face and inspecting somebody's face, making a judgment upon somebody's face. It's essentially a superficial judgment based on material standards. So Strong's Dictionary of Greek Terms puts it in this way. It's the fault of character in which you are called upon to make a judgment or praise something or somebody and you judge and you base your appraisal on superficial outward circumstances and not intrinsic merits. This superficial materialistic evaluation favoritism is exactly what James is warning us against. Now, does the world practice superficial evaluation, materialistic evaluation of people? Does the world do that? Yeah, okay. It's not too hard, really. It's not too hard to get people to speak highly of you in this world, is it? Like, what are some of the ways, just I want to hear them, what are some of the ways that you can get the world to speak highly of you? Looks. People like good-looking people, right? Work on your physique. And if you, some of us are naturally limited into how good we can look, so you got to go buy fancy clothes then, right? And uh, cover up. But uh, yes, looks, physical appearance. What are some other ways? Recognition. Recognition. Like, but recognition for what? What they hold. What 
Yes, what they hold is valuable. And what are some of those things? Like how else can you get the world to say great things about you? Do what? I'm sorry. That's a good point. You know, if you've got something bad going on or something that the world wouldn't like, change the story. Make something up. You don't have to be authentic. The world likes money, authority, prestige, power, career success, right? Like, don't worry about your family or helping anybody. Focus on your career. Do well in your career. The world will praise you as much as you want to be praised, right? We all know what the, how the world speaks highly of people and how to garner the, the world's praise. Now, do any of these things have spiritual merit? Your good looks? You think God's impressed? He made you. He, your, your career? Your, your wealth? Your power? You think God's impressed with these things? Now, what does the Lord value? So that's the great thing. We don't have to sit here and wonder, what does God value? What does the Lord value? What does he tell us? The heart and what in your heart? Like what are the specific attitudes, characteristics of the heart that God values? Humility. That's a great one. Does the world value humility? (laughs) The opposite, right? The world values pride. Be proud. Humility, what else? What else does the Lord value? I'm sorry? Love. God values love and love on his terms, right? The way that God defines it. God values love. What else? Giving. Love, sacrificial giving. Does the world value sacrificial giving? Not unless you're going to put my name on the building. Or like, not unless my corporation can publish, like on the internet that we've done this thing, right? We got to make sure, log your volunteer hours because we got to tell people that you're volunteering, right? Um, log your, vol- I mean, it, it, you can go through, I think the first place, there's numerous places you can go to to see what God values. But how about the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5? Just go through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the humble in spirit. Those who mourn over their sinfulness, gentleness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Being merciful, purity in heart, being a peacemaker, being willing to be persecuted for righteousness sake, for our Lord. You can put the list of what the world values on one side and the list of what God values on the other side And they are in just absolute stark contrast with one another, which is why go back to James chapter, or I'm sorry, chapter two, verse one, James is saying, hey, this glorious faith in your Lord Jesus Christ does not mix with the superficial materialistic treatment of people. These things are mutually Exclusive. Immediately what comes to mind here is 1 Samuel 16. And I wrote this note before I listened to Drew's lesson from last week. And he went to 1 Samuel 16. I was like, well, can I do that twice? Or is that like a plagiarism time? And then <laughs> thankfully he set a precedent because then he doubled up on something what he did the week before. And I was like, well, if Drew, if it's good enough for Drew, it's good enough for me. So 
1 Samuel 16, Samuel's chosen to, to go to the sons of Jesse and choose the first king or the next king of Israel. And you know, you're gonna go choose a king, you're gonna look for some, some of those kingly attributes, right? So Eliab, the first son comes in and Samuel's looking at him thinking, hey, this guy looks like a king. Big, tall, broad shoulders. He looks the part of a king. Samuel's ready to choose him, make him king. But God steps in, 1 Samuel 16, 7, and the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. This is very literally what James is talking about here. Superficial, materialistic evaluation and judgment of people. God says, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. This is what James is calling us to. This is the exact principle James is teaching us. And, um, and uh, it's, it's something that we'll see Paul carries into the New Testament. And, and so what might this sinful attitude of personal favoritism look like? Now, you've probably been familiar with this passage or looked ahead. It's going to be about money. That's what James is going to talk about. But is that the only, I think really James is just giving us an example. Is material wealth the only way we can play favorites with one another based on a superficial level? What are some other methods beyond wealth that we might value somebody at a superficial level? We've said a few already, right? I think you said appearances, physical appearances, power, prestige. I'm sorry, what was that? Family name, yeah, that's a, that's a good one, right? It's like, oh, well, you're so-and-so's dad, so you get the inside track on everything, right? So, so don't just, as we look at James's example here of favoritism based on wealth, let's not box us into that because I, don't, I think James is just giving us an example. Let's keep in mind that this superficial type of favoritism can play out in numerous different ways. But... Our second point here, an illustration of favoritism. James is going to paint us a picture of what this looks like. In verses 2 to 4, he says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Uh, here we have a hypothetical situation, which is frankly something that we can all relate to. It's a gathering of believers and two men come in to visit. One is very rich. It shows in how he dresses, it shows in his appearance. He's got the jewelry, he's got the nice clothes. Um, but on this particular day, there's another visitor. The second man comes in and he is poor. And it shows in his appearance as well, dirty clothes. And most likely if you got dirty clothes on, you probably smell bad too, right? So it's, uh, it's two very distinct different types of people. And the important part of this illustration is how these two different men get treated. James is gonna show us where we can so easily and often go wrong. Start with the rich man. 
In verse three, James says, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. The rich man, we're gonna make sure he gets a good spot. He gets a good seat because we want him to be impressed. We want him to come back. We wanna make sure he leaves saying, hey, this is the kind of church I can go to. Um, Those with wealth, fame, power, prestige, it's just the way of the world. It buys privilege. The thing is, we're the church. The way of the world's not supposed to be our way, right? Um, Now, is there anything wrong with being rich in and of itself? Is there anything sinful with being rich and wealthy? I'm seeing a lot of people saying no. And absolutely, I agree with you. The Bible does not condemn wealth. The Bible does not condemn being rich. What it does condemn is greed, the love of money, idolization of money, us trusting in our money, but it doesn't condemn being rich. And a second question for you here, is there anything wrong with being nice, kind, and loving to wealthy people? No, rich person walks in, a wealthy, prestigious person walks in, we should love them and be kind to him. We are to love everyone. The problem is what James says at the beginning of verse three. It's when we give special attention. It's when believers in the church give privilege to the rich or any other superficial level of esteeming somebody. That's where we get it wrong. Because when the poor man walks in, does he get the same experience? or is it a much different experience? And the illustration James gives us, it is a much different experience. You say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Now in our churches today, it's kind of hard for us to necessarily relate to the illustration that James is giving exactly here, right? Like you can pretty often find a chair, even on crowded days. Like our churches these days tend to be relatively um, comfortable, but uh, early churches would often meet in houses, right? The house of one of their members or um, the earliest would still meet in synagogues. In fact, that's the word that James uses here. So that's probably uh, what's going on. Um, But it was very likely in these circumstances, meeting in the synagogue or meeting in somebody's house that there just weren't going to be enough seats for everybody. There weren't going to be enough seats for everybody. Some people were going to have to stand. And a lot of other folks were going to have to sit on the floor if they weren't willing to stand. But in the example James gives us when the rich man walks in, we're going to be sure they find a seat, right? We're going to make sure they get the best seat. But to the poor man, why don't you go stand over there? Like kind of out of the way. Why don't you go... um, kind of like we treat our children, like just stay out of the way. Go play over there. Or you can sit by my footstool. Now picture this, this is a, that's rough, right? Like the picture you should have here is somebody who has a seat and they even have a footstool. Like this is the most relaxed, laid back person in the congregation. They've got maximum comfort. And now if you're not gonna give up your chair for somebody, at least let them sit on the footstool, right? Do you really need to be lounged back, relaxing, that comfortable? Don't make them sit on the ground. 
Don't say, hey, I don't really feel like getting up, giving up my footstool. Why don't you just sit down next to it, right? You aren't going to treat the rich man that way. You aren't going to treat the person of prominence that way. So why are you going to treat the poor man that way? What James says in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? And again, this isn't about chairs or wealth. So in our church, we got plenty of chairs here this morning, right? So probably chairs isn't going to be the way we might show favoritism. But what are some of the ways? What are some of the dangerous ways that we can show privilege to somebody in the church based on superficial merits? Whether we talk to them or not. Like, do you ever challenge yourself with that? That's a great way to challenge yourself. Like the church is a place where we need to come and love each other, fellowship, build one another up. Who do you choose to talk to on Sunday morning? Is it, I mean, I doubt Pastor Dusty ever has trouble finding somebody to talk to, right? Like people are going to line up. He's, he's the pastor. Or like people who are in, uh, in leadership positions don't tend to have trouble finding people to talk to, right? But what about the lowly person? What about the person who has absolutely nothing on a superficial level to offer you? Do you go out of your way to talk to them and encourage them the same way you would anyone else? I love that. What are some other ways that we can show sinful favoritism to others in the church? Serving them. them. Like, yeah, like, okay, two people are sick in the church who could really use some meals at home. This person, highly visible member of the church that everybody knows they got people lining up, right? The lowly person though, the person that doesn't always have that uh, level of preeminence in the church, we forget, we forget. And, and uh, the, the answer there is not to show less love for one, it's to love them both, right? To love them both. I think, um, and these are not things that I see in our church. I wanna be very clear. These are things that, I feel can be dangerous in churches in general. Uh, But somebody comes in with preeminence and we fast track them on certain positions in church, be it teaching, being an elder, a deacon, whatever the case may be, ignoring somebody's sin because, well, I don't wanna rock the boat in the church. So we're gonna let that one slide. We're not gonna address the sin issue there giving somebody undue influence because of their wealth or some other worldly estimation of prestige. Again, not things that I see in our church, but things that we should always be cautious of. And I know our leadership is cautious of in the church and just drawing out, James is giving us one illustration here, but there's many, many ways that these principles can play out. When you show favor, for either the wealthy or some other superficial, materialistic um, evaluation, you have fallen into sinful, worldly ways of thinking. You're essentially being a lover of the world, 
right? You're being a lover of the world, valuing what the world values, the lust of flesh, of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. In whatever manner that plays out, fine clothing, prestige, power, success, career, status, these are things the world loves. They should not be the things that the church loves or that the church values. When it comes to God's evaluation of a man, they mean nothing, right? And so our objective is to strive towards Christ's likeness, to strive towards godliness. That means we do not judge based on the superficialities of the world. The next point James is going to emphasize here is just the ugliness of favoritism, the ugliness of it. Verses 5 to 9. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which they have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Now, there's two very important things I want to say here about what James is not teaching. Two things that James is not teaching. First thing, he's not teaching that there's some kind of spiritual merit to poverty. Like he's not teaching that poverty is something that God looks at and says, hey, you're poor, you're righteous. I like that. It's not asceticism, right? The gospel is as clear as can be that our only hope for salvation, for reconciliation with God is through Jesus Christ, through faith in him. That is our only hope. You can go sell everything you have and give everything you have to the poor and live a life of poverty. And apart from Christ, you're just gonna go to hell poor, okay? There's no spiritual merit. Paul dresses this Colossians 2.23 that it has perhaps you can make it appear outwardly to have some form of righteousness. You can make it look good, but it's of no true value against the flesh. No true value when it comes to righteousness. So the first thing James is not teaching is that you merit anything from God through poverty. The second thing he's not teaching, which I mentioned briefly earlier, but I just want to make it a point, is that it's a sin to be wealthy. The Bible doesn't teach that. Job, I mean, there, we could go through many examples, right? But like the first ones that come to mind, Job, Job was wealthy and righteous. Uh, King David became very wealthy and, and um, righteous. The New Testament church had many people in the New Testament recorded for us who uh, were well off and wealthy and used their wealth for godly purposes. So the Bible doesn't condemn wealth in and of itself. 
it's what we talked about earlier, greed, the love of money and the trust in it that the Bible condemns. I don't even know how you judge wealth necessarily, right? Like what, what is wealthy? How do you make that definition? Like if you go by the standards of 99% of human existence, most of us in here are pretty wealthy, right? We're not like living in the earth and eating bugs. So um, I don't even know how you define wealth. James is simply, simply pointing out here that while the world praises material wealth and the world very much looks down on being poor, right? Like obviously being in physical need and in poverty is something that we should work against, right? I mean, that's just common sense, but the world, I mean, that's like objective number one for the world. Like from the second you're born, It's like, all right, we got to start teaching this kid colors and numbers and letters and get them into school. And they better be focused at school because the career is number one, right? Like that's your career capabilities is how we define ourselves. Um, The world hates poor, hates poverty, but and very often looks down upon those who are poor when God very often does the exact Opposite. Verse 5, James says, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Think through the Bible, just what you know about it, just the stories you've heard, the Old Testament, New Testament. It's remarkable how often God chooses the least likely candidates to do his work. It's just a constant theme. Like, time to destroy some Midianites. Let's go find Gideon. Gideon himself is like, me? Are you sure? That doesn't seem right. That's just God's way throughout Scripture. It was the premise of God choosing the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. God makes it very clear that he didn't choose Israel because they were some great, powerful nation. Or in and of themselves, he saw some great potential in them, some great, some great leadership. No, God makes it very clear. He chose Israel because they were weak by the world standards. He chose Israel because they were not strong in number. He chose them while they were slaves in Egypt at their weakest point in history. It's just like when he chose David to become king. He didn't go in and choose who the world would have chosen to be his king he chose the youngest son the lowliest David Paul carries this principle into the New Testament first Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 Paul says for consider your calling brethren that there were not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God regularly uses people that the world does not value for his purposes. And he tells you why he does this. He does this because when great things are accomplished, he wants there to be no question as to where the glory should go. By whose power and strength did this happen? It couldn't have been by us. 
It had to have been God. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul again says that the glow of the knowledge of God in Christ is in us clay, fragile, unimpressive pots so that it is evident that the surpassing greatness of the power is from God and not from ourselves. It's God's constant method, constant approach. We see it in the church, right? Like you think about, okay, we need some money to build, to build a building. And then you see like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk just like shooting rockets and throwing money around. You think, okay, like if we could just get one billionaire, there's plenty of them out there. If we could just get one, think about how many churches we could build, right? We just need one. Yet that is just not how God operates because whatever his people and his church accomplishes, he wants it to be extraordinarily clear that it was not by human means, human power, human wisdom and ingenuity, but it was by his power. And all glory goes to him and not at all to us. That is how God does things. God values the poor of this world and it's most often those who he chooses. So when we shun the poor and favor the rich, we are acting very unchristlike, very ungodlike. Verse six, you have dishonored the poor man. James continues to highlight just how worldly and ungodly it is when we favor the rich over the poor and dishonor the poor. He says, continuing in verse six, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Again, James isn't giving us a law here. James is not saying like, okay, all rich people are evil. That would be completely contradictory to very much of what we see in scripture, right? And there's wealthy people throughout scripture and throughout church history who have done great things for the kingdom. But the point that James is making is just that while the world favors the rich and dishonors the poor, the church, if we wanna be like God, should the, the, there should be no personal favoritism when it comes to the rich and we should value the poor. The rich are typically the ones, again, not a law, but just very often typically the ones looking to exploit the poor. Like, okay, I've got a lot of money. How can I get more? What more can I twist out of this market, this potential opportunity? And for the rich, it's not impossible but it is much more difficult to inherit the kingdom of God. It's difficult for the rich to come to faith in Christ. Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 to 26, Jesus says, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it, apart from God, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, this is true for all of us, but Jesus is just making a point with the rich here. Apart from God, it is impossible for the rich man to come to the understanding of his need for a savior, to come to the understanding of his spiritual poverty. Now, thankfully for rich people and for all of us, God does the humanly impossible right? Plenty of rich people get into heaven because God does the impossible. Uh, the disciples even ask Jesus, then who can be saved? 
And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are impossible. Think about what wealth does. Like for us to come to a place of salvation, we have to recognize our poverty, that we are poor in spirit and in desperate need, that this material world has no lasting value. And money can make that tough because money does take care of a lot of worldly needs, right? And it can lull us into trusting in it and thinking, okay, here is my security. Here's my value. And the world's going to be around cheering you too, right? So it's not like you're going to have many people in the world around you saying, hey, I think you're overvaluing your money. And I think you're making, no, the world's going to be like, yes, you're right. Do better for yourself, secure yourself. And it tricks us into thinking that we are self-sufficient. That's why Jesus is saying it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Um, It is hard because it tricks us. It takes the Holy Spirit working in our lives to show us our 100% full dependency upon God. And the point that James is making is that God places no value upon this material, worldly, monetary things. And and there's a flip side here, right? Like James wants us to see the ungodliness of superficial favoritism. But there's a flip side. He wants us to recognize the godliness of love. In verse 8, he says, If, however... You are fulfilling the royal law. According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You are doing well. I love that the Bible does this over and over again. Put off this sin, renew your mind, and put on this righteousness, right? It's a pattern all over, and James does it here. Look, put off the superficial level of favoritism that is unloving and ungodly, and put on Love your neighbor as yourself. What he calls the royal law. The standard here is love. The message here isn't to show favoritism to the poor man and treat the rich man bad. Like, hey, you're rich. You're the one taking advantage of everybody. You go sit over there or you sit on the floor or you stand over there, right? The answer here isn't to show unfavoritism to the rich man and favoritism to the poor. The answer is to love them both the same. The answer is love, to love them both sacrificially. If two men come in, two men get chairs, right? Whether they're rich or poor. Jesus call, or James calls this the royal law because it's so prominent throughout scripture. Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus is asked, what are the most important commandments? Well, first start, love God with all your being, everything that you are. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else really falls into place with these two commandments. But in verse nine, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. When we show partiality in our churches based on worldly standards, we are in sin. Now, how bad is it? Like as people, We're really good at moving the target, right? Like if we can't hit a target, if I can't dunk on the basketball goal, they make them these days, you just go crank it, lower it down. Eventually it'll get to where I can dunk on it, right? Like we're we're really good at lowering the standards, making ourselves feel better. We'll admit that we're not perfect, 
but we're okay. Like, uh, that's what James is going to remind us of here. Point, point four, the seriousness of this sin. Verses 10 to 13. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, what James is saying here, when it comes to the commandments of God and his instructions for us, we don't have the authority or the option of ranking these things and deciding, okay, here's my priorities. I'm going to focus on these. They seem more important. They're the ones I kind of like. I do them naturally anyhow. So I'm going to go, go with these things. And, and these other ones, I'm not going to take so seriously. We can tend to do that, right? Or we can look at others, the lives of others, and be like, well, I'm not perfect, but look at their sinfulness. Like, look at how bad what they're doing is. I'm not that terrible at least, right? But what God tells us, what James is telling us here, is that disobedience is disobedience. In some senses, not in all, but in a sense, all sins are created equal, right? Like not in a consequential sense. Like if I'm angry with you and then I recognize that sin and repent of it, I still committed the sin of being um, unrighteously angry with you, right? If I murder you, the consequences are a lot different, right? Like I'm not going to say that those two sins are created equal in the sense of the consequences that flow out of that and the, the burden that come, come with that. But have both sins made me guilty before God and a lawbreaker? Yes. In that sense, in the sense of our justification before God, all sins are created equal. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? In terms of our standing before God, all of us are in desperate need of a savior. And just stumbling in one point condemns you before God because his standard is perfection, righteousness. His own holiness is the standard. And the beauty of the gospel is that through faith in Christ, his righteousness is credited to our account. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He pays the penalty for our sins and we can stand before God counted as righteous. But James is saying here, you can't try to rank the seriousness of sin and do and, and justify yourself by keeping those things that you deem to be most important. By showing favoritism on a superficial level, you have stumbled into sin. And all sin is an offense to God. But God has given us a savior. In the person of Jesus Christ, we, he says we have the law of liberty here. We are, the, the, we are free in Christ free from the burden of the law, free um, from the condemnation of the law, not free in the sense that we now have a license to go do anything we want 
and live in any way we want, but we are free from the condemnation of the law to serve God in love, to, to, to live in the freedom of the gospel, serving our Lord. And if you are, as verse one puts it, a brother in Christ, if you are saved by faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, then verse 12 says, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. If you are under the law of liberty, that is under the gospel of Jesus Christ, speak in that way, act in that way, treat one another in that way. It's really the whole theme of James, right? Is that our salvation has effects on the way we live and it changes the way we live and it changes the way we interact and it changes the way we love one another. That is what James is saying here. If you are in Christ, treat one another that way, love one another that way, live this out. And the specific instruction here, the point of application that James is driving when it comes to how we should live out the gospel in verses one to 13 is to love all men, love all men. See the value of God's image in all men, sacrificially serve all men. Don't treat them, judge them with a spirit of favoritism based on earthly worldly standards. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When we lack mercy, when we lack compassion, when we judge each other based on superficial things, we are acting as those who are outside of the gospel. We're acting like the world at that point. We're no different from the world, outside of the faith, outside of the mercy of God. So how do we practice what we've learned? I've given us three points here. Value what God values in other people. So the world values money, fame, authority, prestige. We know what the world values, but value what God values in other people. Value love, value faith, value humility, righteousness, sacrificial service. These are the attitudes we should be building up in one another and encouraging in one another. And as we think of people like, okay, who are gonna be my role models? Who are gonna be the people, their path is the one I wanna follow as I pursue Christ-likeness. It's not those who are prestigious in this world, but it's those who are prestigious in the things of Jesus Christ those who are prestigious in the gospel, when it comes time to choose elders and deacons and leaders in the church, are we sitting down to evaluate their business acumen, their financial knowledge or, you know, legal knowledge, maybe we need a lawyer, like, or it's good to have this person, they're very uh, highly esteemed in the community. If we could get them on the deacon board, that would be awesome. Or do we judge them based on what God values, their faith, love, humility, righteousness. And whether you're a mechanic, school teacher, or a rocket scientist or whatever, on the spectrum of career success you are, we look at it and say, hey, look at that faith, love, and humility. This is who we need leading 
our church. Value what God values in other people. Number two, love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. The rich, the poor, and everything in between. Sacrificially love. When people visit our church, they should feel sacrificially loved. We should go out of our way to show them the love and joy of Christ. When there's need in the church, we love and serve everybody. It doesn't matter their social status. It doesn't matter how prestigious they are, what superficial merits they may have. They need our love. They need our sacrificial love. Third, recognize our equality in Christ. That's the point Paul's making in Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul's saying there is, look, it's not just those three ways. There's countless different ways in society. We divide ourselves up and stratify ourselves and, and call some people great, some people less. Paul is saying, no, none of that applies to the kingdom. In the kingdom, when it comes to our, our, our position in Christ, we are all 100% in need of and dependent on the grace and mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are all spiritually equal before God. Love each other in that way. Recognize our equality in Christ. Treat one another that way. The, the divisions and stratification that you see happening in the world, those things do not mix with the faith we have in our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and how that should be lived out and applied in our day-to-day -day lives and especially here in the church. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your love for us that you saved us regardless of ourselves, despite ourselves. You saved us based on your mercy, your grace, and your love alone. And we are just so grateful for that. And just pray that um, the love for you and the love for your gospel would overflow in how we treat one another, that we would look for ways to encourage one another, sacrificially serve one another. And as we prepare for worship this morning, I just pray you'd help us to focus our hearts and minds on you. And as we interact with one another, help us to um, encourage each other and enjoy that fellowship in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.